0: Thank you. Thank you Jacqueline and thank you for the SRHE for organising this event and enabling us to come together as a community to exchange our research, our ideas and our experiences. As Jacqueline said at the beginning, I began um, with Jacqueline really, researching refugees and higher education. It must have been 10 or 12 years ago and we were in a very different context then. We thought it was tough then. We were campaigning and we thought it was very tough, but we had access to... Uh, ESF funding for projects to work with refugees and with asylum seekers and the way that refugees were categorised and treated was very very different. So we're in a very different context now in our research so I think it's particularly pressing and important that, that we can come together around this. So much of my research has been around the experiences of refugees and I've tended to look through my research, through the lens of life history and individual biography because I think if you want to understand somebody's present and their future aspirations, how they interact with the world around them, how they're shaped by the world around them and how they in turn shape the world, we need to understand their biography and their history, where they've come from. And I think that's particularly important when working with refugees because they clearly have had a dislocation in their biography and they're facing biographical uncertainties. So I'm going to draw on some research that um, I conducted between 2006 and 2010 and it was part of my doctoral research Uh, and I followed a group of students who had come to the UK as refugees and I followed them as they moved through higher education. I'm just going to give you some snapshots and glimpses of of some of the experiences and some of the things that we can learn um, from those. Clearly those who actually access higher education are the minority. They're in an extremely privileged positions because most higher education institutions keep their doors firmly closed against uh, refugees and asylum seekers as I'll, as I'll come on to uh, to talk about. Um, but despite being in that privileged position of having gained access, the shadow of having been a refugee and those experiences continued to impact on their experiences in, in higher education. And there were complex distinctions and inequalities and differences which remained hidden and largely unrecognised in in higher education. So I want to draw attention to a few of those. My research also underlines the fact that refugees are not a homogenous group. There's no single narrative of what it means to be a refugee and when we talk about people, we need to to bear that in mind. But we can identify some of the challenges um, and um, some of the interventions that might be required in in higher education, which I hope we'll be able to pick up um, later in, in the afternoon. So, higher education is a human right enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and in the Convention on uh, the Rights of the Child. The benefits of access to higher education have only fairly recently in global discourses been, been recognized. The emphasis has been very much on universal primary education for all and higher, um, uh, secondary education for all. Very little attention has been paid to higher education until quite recently. It's been sort of the cherry on the top, uh, the, the kind of luxury that we can actually do without in difficult situations. But UNESCO um, and others have recently been, more recently been recognising the benefits and they include, they provide an incentive to young people to complete their primary and secondary education. If there's a goal and a progression route there, they're more likely to to stay on and complete their education if they can imagine a future and see a place for themselves in higher education. It provides human capital for the reconstruction in post-conflict uh, affected areas. And we know that when when Syrian refugees are uh, interviewed, particularly Syrian refugees, they often say, "Well, I intend to go back. I wanted to go back. I want to be part of the reconstruction." Whether that maintains over time, we we don't know, but um, it is very important. It empowers refugees communities and higher education also promote social and economic and gender equality so for all those reasons um, it's a good thing and finally being recognized I was um, earlier in the year I was in Jordan and of course as we know that the majority of refugees are housed in and cared for in the global south Jordan Lebanon um, uh, Turkey in particular those neighboring countries uh, uh, are housing great numbers and can great numbers of refugees and I just I don't know if you can see those pictures but is there anything that strikes out this is these are pictures so if I just say a little bit about Jordan um, and the refugees there so what they've done is in the north of Jordan to accommodate the refugees who are outside of camps so these are urban refugees um, in cities like Obid where these photos were taken the Jordanian kids go to school in the mornings so and have a slightly shortened day to accommodate the Syrian children in the afternoon who also have just a couple of hours of education. That is unimaginable happening in Europe, I have to say, that 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 would even be contemplated. Um, Because the education is so limited for the Syrian uh, refugee children living there, this was a a project run by volunteers which has got premises and set up and they offer, it's sort of two hours a day and it's sort of like a, I guess it's a cross between an after school club and an educational facility so you can see uh, they're learning Arabic using the Quran. Um, they've got here the Red Crescent's coming to talk to them about various things. something thing I don't know if you can see in that picture. There are actually only two boys out of 25 girls and two boys, two, three boys. And it went from all ages, from sort of three up to um, these girls, they're, they're 14, 15. And when I said, because this is unusual... You'd expect there to be a predominance of boys in an education um, project like this. Um, and I was told the boys have left their childhood behind. Their fathers are in transit or in Europe trying to get uh, established family reunification and the boys have dropped out. They're hanging out on the street. They're, they're now the man of the household or whatever. But they're not engaging in education in the same way. And I think we need to remember that that is the benefit and the value of higher education and further education in giving people purpose um, and and hope. Back to the UK, when we think about higher education, there are two key d- discourses for managing diversity and difference in higher education. The first are the widening participation discourses, which are around removing structural barriers. They have become much narrower, as Jacqueline said at the beginning. Um, but they're there to try and address underrepresentation of certain groups. They recognise issues of poverty, social exclusion, and lack of opportunity. Then we have the international student discourses, where higher education institutions compete for high fee paying. I've put non EU students there, but it could also be EU students in the future. And most universities have international departments concerned with the engagement and integration of their international students. Now, refugees fall between the cracks of these institutional policies and practices. They're not recognised. There's very little that's known about their presence, absence or participation in higher education. And with one or two notable exceptions, um, they're not recognised in either widening participation or international discourses. Data's not collected by HESA or HEFKE um, on entry or performance. Back in 2007... Some of Jacqueline's research noted that just six institutions of 124 explicitly referenced refugees or asylum seekers in their widening participation um, policies. In 2016-17, the offer website, 10 institutions of 170 had um, agreements and referenced this group. But 36 institutions are now offering bursaries or scholarships to refugees and asylum seekers. And I've taken that from the Helen Kennedy Foundation, which I think, I hope there's someone here going to talk more about that this afternoon. Fab. (laughs) Um, So, and and these figures have have been increasing, which I'm sure um, uh, we'll talk about this afternoon. So it appears that humanitarian crisis has pricked the conscience of higher education in the UK. And it's interesting I think to consider the motivations and how different institutions have responded which I hope again we're going to hear more more about. My own institution um, has offered language scholarships to Syrian refugees who have been relocated under the Syrian Vulnerable Persons Scheme and is planning to launch a scholarship for a Syrian um, refugee. But it has no plans to change its policy on refugees and asylum seekers from Eritrea, from Pakistan, from Zimbabwe, from Iraq from any of the other refugee producing countries. That's my institution. Other institutions might be might be slightly dif- different. Um, and it's got no, no intention of changing its widening participation policy to target the refugees and asylum seekers currently living in Brighton and Hove. Now to me that sticks in my gullet somewhat because we did have a very successful project between Brighton University and Sussex University which supported refugees accessing higher education back in 2006, 2007. Funded by the European Social Fund, but as soon as the funding uh, withdrew, the universities, neither university, carried on supporting it. They weren't interested. But now we've had this splashed all over our website, which is great that the university is doing something. But I question, um, I question the motivations, and I, I'm very uh, uncomfortable with a moral discourse and the moral economy around refugees, which accepts some as deserving and others as undeserving of our support and our health and we've got this serendipity of nationality and country of birth which determines opportunities and life chances of people because that's who we're talking about people and I think we can forget that. However we have to remain optimistic and hopeful this will translate into more policies of widening participation which target this this group and it's not just about headline grabbing. So these have been mentioned before these bureaucratic labelling that we've um, come through. Um, it's a Kafkaesque bureaucratic maze that confronts refugees and asylum seekers. Um, there's significant and complex differentiation in terms of legal statuses, restrictions and entitlements. So for example, asylum seekers, they're not entitled to pay home fees, they have to pay overseas uh, fees and they're not eligible for student support. Those granted humanitarian protection, get home fees but you're not entitled to student support unless you've been resident for three years, discretionary leave to remain which is the unaccompanied, asylum-seeking children mainly, um, uh, those children and family members are not eligible for home fee or student support. There is universities do have some discretion. But this is a rapidly shifting terrain um, and in response to a legal challenge the Department for Business Innovation and Skills in September 2015 has developed an interim policy which some people might know more about how that's working than me which uh, enables exceptional student support while it considers reframing some of these i think particularly around the un- unaccompanied asylum seeking children um, uh, in response to that so what we've got here is what Yuval davis has referred to as everyday bordering so the bordering is not just as he only says the borders at around national borders we're not talking about national borders anymore we're talking about all of us in our everyday practices and working lives, creating borders, assessing who's entitled to what and that happens in education, it happens in housing, it happens in health. People are being expected to check people's entitlement of what they're entitled to and if you're entitled, if you fit within a category, you can enter. If not, the door is firmly closed in front of you. So once refugee status is confirmed, um, people can participate in higher education and they're treated as home students and once they've got their residential uh, status um, confirmed, they can access student loans as well. So for refugees, the ones that I've been working with, um, came to the UK with high levels of human capital and higher education is a a crucial means of re-establishing their lives and rebuilding professional identities in order for them to get work commensurate with their um, skills and employment. We know there's been a a lot of research around about highly skilled migrants working as taxi drivers or cleaners or night staff or care workers. We know that, we know there's a waste, waste of resource and a waste of talent and that we need to find ways of tapping into that and supporting people. Higher education is one of those ways. For refugees, like any other group, it can provide an access out of poverty getting into higher education and getting a degree. So it is is important. So the next few slides take us through some of of the things that came out of this earlier research that that I did. So um, the first point I wanted to make is about establishing a learner identity and legitimising capital. So the kinds of learner identities that could be constructed and the ease with which educational success could be achieved depended on the extent to which people's capital was recognised and could be deployed. And when I talk about capital, I'm talking about their educational capital, or their professional knowledge, what they brought with them. So, for example, Patricia, who was from Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe, the education system there, the language of instruction, was English in the school that she went to uh, post-independence. And um, she did O-levels and GCSE, A-levels. So she was well-versed in the essayist literacy practices. When she got into higher education, she flew through it. She trained as a mental health nurse. She f- flew through it. Um, it gave her a sense of belonging and entitlement. She questioned her tutors. She engaged in anything that was was, was going. Because she was familiar with the essayist literacy practices and the academic ex- experiences and expectations, and there was no language barrier. Similarly, Alan, who was a civil engineer from Iraq, Iran, um, He uh, was a civil engineer, he did an MSc. He was able to draw on the maths calcs that he used in the projects. They were bigger projects, so he was able to draw upon existing knowledge. And again, he had a very positive learner identity in higher education. Similarly, Savillon, a businessman, um, he was encouraged and able on the course that he did to to draw upon his business uh, and professional knowledge on his BSc. So they established positive and confident learner identities Um, And that that formal learning gave them a sense of belonging and purpose at a time in their life when other biographical uh, certainties had had dissolved. And in Bourdieu's framework, if you want to theorise that, they possessed capital which was recognised as legitimate and could be deployed um, to bring advantage. On the other hand, for some, establishing a positive learner identity was very, very difficult. And their experience of higher education was one of exclusion and deficit. So, Faraday, who was a hospital dietitian from Moran, she came from a very different educational system and she struggled with the unfamiliar academic expectations and learning styles. What Lillis has described as an institutional practice of mystery, that higher education doesn't make explicit and clear the expectations, it assumes. The expectations and assumes that all students come into higher education with a similar background and know how to write an essay um, and what critical thinking and those sorts of skills are. Um, so I've just put that little quote there, I'll read it, it, it so, so she says, some lecturers give you a lot and you have to find a little, and some give you a little and you have to find a lot, but I still don't know which one is what. I have to learn how to pick up what I need, they don't really help. Lecturers in Iran work much harder. Now that quote could have been probably said by um, any of our international students or many of our international students. Key difference is Faraday was not able to access the support that was offered to international students at the institution where she was because she wasn't paying the high fee status. She was a home fee student, um, and she didn't um, she didn't know how to locate. Or access the support services, and nobody supported her in that because she didn't fall into the right the right category. So her story throughout her degree actually is narrated from a position of difference and deficit, and she was always uh, very aware that she didn't have the right kind of knowledge to succeed. Now I just wanted to talk a little bit about the hidden distinctions and exclusions that came up, and these particularly around financial and emotional. Um, concerns dominating all of the narratives was how the refugee identity generated these hidden distinctions and exclusions so all were managing complex transnational relations Um, the additional financial responsibilities including sending remittances to family overseas Um, so for example Savalan from Iran who's mentioned there he was the only son of a family with uh, five daughters And it was his role to support not only his parents, but also his sisters as they went through education um, uh, and uh, got married. And he describes the the different cultural understandings and expectations between himself um, and his fellow students. So for them, it is a different story. They phone daddy or mummy and they give them money. In my turn, my mummy or daddy phones me and they ask me for money. So it's slightly different. And he was working, actually most of the, the refugees I work with, they were working hugely long hours in order to support themselves here and to support family overseas. They made excuses for not going out with uh, their fellow students because they simply couldn't afford to go out. So they'd always be making constant excuses um, for why they were unable to go out. Then, of course, it's not just financial transactions, but they've got emotional... And family ties at home most refugees have left people in fairly dire situations where they're fearful of their lives and fearful for them so there's a constant emotional anxiety um, around what's what's going on Um, family reunification is major it's a major issue of course if somebody gets to a safe place they want their family to be able to come and join them and the quote at the The bottom is from Patricia who had left uh, from left three young children in Zimbabwe she had fled very suddenly very quickly um, and and she left children of sort of four seven and nine and it took uh, two or three years for family reunification to be granted so she was working very long shifts um, to send money back to her family to try and support them but also the pain of not having her children um, with her was was quite acute for her So these struggles were lived in private. Um, They weren't disclosed to both because the label and the idea of refugee has such negative connotations, people kept them very much hidden into themselves. Mental health issues, um, uh, loneliness and varying degrees of poor mental health impacted on the lives of all of the students I worked with at different different points. Um, So it's missing your family, um alan who's doing the msc in, in civil engineering he had to intermit he had post-traumatic stress due to the journey uh, a very traumatic journey into the uk but it, so it was an ongoing struggle with mental health issues um, um, the vulnerability of temporary refugee status jacqueline mentioned this at the beginning um Sablan was one of the first students to be granted five years to remain so you get a temporary refugee status now you don't get a long-term one so again that your sense of um stability and security is granted just for five years then you have to reapply now he was one of the first to get that and at that time he did get student loan and he was able after because he uh, to, to, to access higher education but that was looming ahead of him all of the time and so he made the decision rather than do a four-year sandwich he had the option of taking a year abroad which he wanted to do but he said no if i do that then um i might get sent back before I finish my degree, I want to do my three year degree and then at least if they throw me out, I've got a degree. And he spent much of his second and third year anxiously filling in forms and trying to second guess what the UK uh, Home Office would consider a good citizen. Because that's what the, the review process became, you, you know, proving that you're a good and decent person. So he was doing all kinds of things, trying to second guess because he was one of the first to come up about whether he would be allowed to stay or whether he'd be sent back. Um, So fear of deportation for themselves, or their loved ones, creates an additional layer of anxiety. Uh, So, loneliness and little sense of shared everyday practices, there were cultural and financial differences, and I'll come back to the cultural differences um, shortly, and they're rendered doubly invisible. They're not recognised in policies, practices in higher education, and the differences, as I said, were very much lived as private and hidden and their struggles and inequalities were, n- were not um, recognised. So, meeting the challenges. So the experiences that I've just outlined, I think, highlight some of the challenges for policy and practice and also ways in which we might start to <clears throat> meet those challenges. And the first one I've put there is these binaries of traditional and non-traditional students. Um, Gorard, um, produced a, a, a report questioning this binary. And it's very much based on a time when higher, people in higher education come from very dis- discrete, homogenous groups got into higher education. We now have mass higher education. We now have international higher education. It makes no sense to talk about traditional and non-traditional. And the home and the overseas, as I've indicated, um, doesn't have the same analytical purchase it might have done in, in the past. And similarly, inclusion and exclusion. People aren't either included in higher education or excluded. It's much more nuanced in how people participate and are able to participate fully in different aspects and areas of of higher education. I'd suggest it talks, as I said at the beginning, about the importance of recognising individual um, biography um, and the complex personal, social and cultural positionings that our students have. Um, The value of local and partial knowledge, what Freire refers to as local and partial knowledge, which students bring with them, that provide the foundation upon which other knowledges can be built. Students who are able to do that find it easier to uh, establish a positive identity. I think as well there's something around the pedagogical spaces which encourage private and silence differences uh, to be made public. Learning is about meaning making and requires recognition of the personal. So if you can't share the personal, I think you're always going to be at a disadvantage in that. So some practical issues and questions. I think for universities to to consider about how they support students with um, academic norms and expectations. I think we've moved quite a long way with that. and I think higher education has moved from looking at students as being in deficit to looking at institutional practices and policies across the board. Um, so I think we need to think about how we enable students to become experts so they can draw upon their past knowledges and experiences. Perhaps we need to reflect upon what cultural relevant activities, sports, and interactive activities we put on for students. Is there sort of theatre and other creative opportunities? Um, or is our information and our, that we have in, in universities, is it focused on drinking and having fun, which doesn't appeal to all students and doesn't enable all students to, to participate. So linked to that, what activities promote positive contacts between and across cultural groups and students. So we've got organisations like STAR, the Student Action for Refugees, which do a fantastic amount in terms of trying to bridge those gaps and they're playing a, a pivotal and a vital a role in that. And finally, of course, the psychosocial support. Have we got the skills and the training within our institutions to support people who have quite specific, often, um, needs and around that? It's not just about getting into a university and doing the academic learning. There's a whole holistic wraparound kind of thinking which needs to go into supporting um. Supporting students, so scholarships or smugglers. Very sadly, I mean that is the the position of many young people um, in the camps in Jordan, Lebanon, and Turkey. They have these very stark choices: you pay a smuggler or you try and get uh, a scholarship. And in that sense the scholarships that we're offering um, and that are being developed are hugely important and hugely valuable um, to giving that hope uh, and that sort of future. But I think we have to remember that in higher education in the UK we are working and living in a hugely hostile and aggressive immigration context. And there are issues of status, protection and well-being that have to be forefront in anything that we 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 do so for example the sorts of questions once a student has finished their student visa they are returned they're forced returned return if a student comes from Jordan or Lebanon they're not returned to Jordan or Lebanon they're returned to Syria those countries of first asylum have no responsibility to take them back so I think we need to think a little bit about the context in which we're working and ensure that we're working within the UNHCR the guidelines there's questions about will family be able to join them you know i think about young people i think about my children if they were to go to the other side of the world and study and have no prospect of seeing us their family again for the next three three years i think that would be a really tough one and i think when your family's back in a refugee camp uh, on the syrian border or the lebanese border somewhere then um, i think that's very very challenging for, for young people. And how are the expectations of scholarship managed? Um, I heard cases when I was in Jordan of, of uh, over 3,000 applicants for one scholarship. That actually it needs to be very clear who is um, eligible to apply. People are desperate, and so if they see an opportunity they'll take it. So we need to be very clear when we're offering scholarships exactly what the expectations um, are and who who can apply, and similarly, certification. Certification of qualifications is probably the biggest issue in refugee education, and it's at all levels of education and all um, contexts. You know, the, the the Syrian kids that I showed you earlier, they were learning, um, trying to learn the Syrian curriculum, because in the in Jordan they get the Jordanian curriculum, but they were trying to educate them with the Syrian curriculum so when they go back they will be able to fit in and they'll have a a relevant qualification so it happens at all levels but how do you get certification and if you're asking for certification for someone to come to a university how are they going to get that are they going to go back to the ministry of education in Syria and ask for that to enable them to present it or can we find more um, interesting innovative ways of getting people to prove their ability to study in, in higher education. And it's not beyond the wit of us all to, to try and think about some of those things, but it can be very, very dangerous for people to try and get certification. And it's not the sort of first thing that you pack when you leave your home, your certificates. Um, UNHCR has suggested that capacity building in the first country of asylum often provides the best prerequisite for sustainable um, programming. So my final kind of note here is a a sort of cautionary one. I think we do need to be mindful of how we respond to the humanitarian crisis and perhaps reflect also on how we can respond to capacity building in higher educations in the countries of first asylum, in the countries where that are are housing and caring for the majority of, of refugees. They're creaking at the seams and need need support and capacity building and i think you know supporting online platforms um supporting bursaries in those countries is also something that we in europe and uh, should should also be thinking about and not thinking just about higher education here in the uk okay thank thank you